Hello, welcome to the February episode of Chattering with ISFM. I'm Natalie Dalgray, Head of ISFM and host of this month's podcast. First up this month, I'm going to be speaking with iCat Care's own Vicky Halls about her work in unowned cats and also some exciting news about the Cat Friendly Homing Programme. We're also featuring our monthly JFMS Clinical Spotlight interview. And this month, we're focusing on hypersomatotropism-induced diabetes in cats. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Chris Scudder about this comorbidity that might be a bit more common than we realise. So to start with, Vicky, I wondered if you'd introduce yourself and explain your role at International Cat Care, because a lot of our veterinary audience will know you as Vicky Hall's feline behaviourist, but they won't necessarily know about the work that you've been doing with International Cat Care. My relationship with International Cat Care goes back to the Feline Advisory Bureau days. There's a conversation between myself and Claire Bessent, who at the time was our chief exec. I said to her, do you know, I've been to a few homing centres and shelters. I'm so sad to see some cats have been there for years. How can that be? If we could start from scratch about how we care for our own cats and we allowed the cat to come into the conversation, what would it look like? And then we realised that there was a way to do things that was more strategic and more efficient, used resources more efficiently, put cats front and centre of everything. This is no critique of the tens of thousands of people all over the world that are working in shelters. Their passion, their devotion, their hard work is absolutely extraordinary. But when we started to look at how this model was developing, we realised we can support you with the way of working that will take what you're doing from good to even better with regards to your productivity. That traditional model of rescue reactive is painful. It's psychologically difficult. It leads to burnout. But this new way of working allows things to work in a more strategic, proactive way. The great thing about that is that the cats benefit, but the people who are working in the sector benefit too. So we developed these ideas. Key players have contributed their incredible skills and understanding of the sector. So it's like all this wonderful knowledge all coming together. So this was going on for years with me as a sort of consultant working with various other people in the project. And then in 2019, there was an opportunity for me to start the new phase of my career, to close my behavior practice and actually become an employee for the first time in a few decades. Um, actually to work with International Cat Care. So I consider that to be a huge joy and privilege. So here I am, four and a half years later, an employee still, and my title is Head of Unowned Cats, which means that I continue to develop the cat-friendly homing model, develop training courses, coaching courses, the website content, resources, that kind of thing, and also expanding beyond the homing centre side of things and looking at cat population management in general. And that's very much a sort of global thing, talking to people around the world who do this wonderfully and understanding what good and effective looks like and trying to pass on good practice information. We had some exciting news coming into the charity at the end of last year. So I was wondering if you'd be happy to tell us about the Battersea grant that we've been lucky enough to receive and what the next three years with that grant is really going to hold for us as a charity, but specifically for your work in the Cat Friendly Homing Programme. I couldn't be more excited. 
We've had a long-standing collaborative relationship with Battersea over the years, and we had the opportunity to apply for a grant last year, and we were awarded that grant as part of Battersea's Global Enabler Programme. And that grant is for three years' work, and we're calling the programme Lucy the Cat-Friendly Homing Programme. And it gives us the opportunity to take all our collective learning and go forward over the next three years with more people and more resources to spread the cat-friendly homing internationally, to develop more courses, more training opportunities, both online and face-to-face, resources, events where we can involve people who maybe aren't aware of what we've been doing or even who we are as an organisation in some countries. So this is really exciting for us. It's like a massive acceleration of our work as a result of this grant. Over the next three years, we're actually targeting the UK, Portugal, Greece, Cyprus and Australia. This doesn't mean the other countries won't matter for the next three years. All our resources are available to all countries. But targeting five specific countries enables us to do that deep dive to find out what the issues are within the country, what the challenges are, and bring this all together to see if we can create this suite of resources and frameworks and training that will have the widest relevance possible. That's what we're trying to do. Cat Friendly Homey is not an algorithm. It's very much a way of thinking and a way of working that has these core principles is the foundations of everything. This sector is full of people who are incredibly resourceful and devoted and and, and passionate to their work. And we want to reach out to those people and get them excited about the idea of evolution. Because evolution, if you see it through the lens of change, it feels daunting. But if you see it through the lens that we experience it, where every time we learn something new, we get hugely excited about it, it's a lovely thing. We're always looking for ways of showing our love towards cats. I think a really good way of showing our love is for our own evolution. Find out as much as we can so that we know we can meet their needs. What an exciting thing. Where can we direct people? Where can people find more information? Well, it's all there on our website. We have a section if they go to um, icatcare.org and to unowned cats, and they'll see that's a tab on top of our website. If they click on that, they'll see a whole series of resources talking about cat-friendly homing model, humane cat population management, loads of resources from different organizations. We also have a sign up for a newsletter. We have a bi-monthly newsletter that has interview videos, articles, all sorts of things every couple of months for those people who really want to get a sense of what's happening uh, across the world. And we encourage people to get in touch with us. My email is on the website. If there's something you need with regard to the care for unknown cats that's not on there, let me know. And I will make a point of getting it on there if I can. Brilliant. No, that's a good point because we're always open to creating new appropriate resources for people. As Vicky said, if you're interested in following more, sign up to the newsletter. Thank you for your time today, Vicky. And now I'm speaking with Dr. Chris Scudder on hypersomatotropism-induced diabetes in cats. This is part of our JFMS feline comorbidities series. Thank you for your time today, Chris. I wanted to ask you why we now use the term hyposomatotropism and not acromegaly in cats, perhaps the way we, we used to. 
you might see it as a slight terminology quirk. It stems from what each of the different terms is trying to describe. Acro meaning height or large and megaly meaning also large, so large height. So it's almost a phenotypic description of the condition. People in human medicine initially get recognized as having the condition. Um, they have demonstrable phenotypic changes, which then results in additional testings to try and understand how that's come about. In cats, what we've learned over time is either cats do not have those demonstrable phenotypic changes, or we're just less akin to being able to identify them. So there was some data published in one study which asked referring vets if they thought that the cat that they were testing had a suspicion for excessive growth hormone, of which only a quarter of which had a suspicion when the three quarters had the condition, but the phenotypic changes weren't there to alert the veterinarian. Hypersomatotropism is describing the condition of excessive growth hormone, and maybe that is the more common presentation in terms of we're not phenotypically identifying it, but we are identifying the growth hormone change. So it might be a better descriptor. So that's why we're leaning more to using that nowadays, although I do fully appreciate it's definitely more of a mouthful. Definitely. For future questions, I'm going to say HST rather than <laughs> hypersomatotropism. <laughs> what sort of testing protocol do you recommend if we've got a newly diagnosed diabetic case and we're concerned about HST? The standard blood test of choice is measuring IGF-1 or insulin-like growth factor 1. And there's a few reasons why that's the diagnostic test of choice. One being its half-life is much longer than that of growth hormone. So its concentrations in the circulation are a bit more stable than that of growth hormone. It's also stable after the sample's been drawn, so it doesn't need any special handling. Two, it does seem to correlate okay in patients that have increased growth hormones. And so if you have an increased IGF-1, then your confidence that that patient truly has excessive growth hormones is reasonably high. Um, so again, its reliability is, is, is pretty good. When are we measuring IGF-1? I think that's going to in part be dependent on clinical suspicion. So you can measure IGF-1 even before you start endogenous insulin, but then their IGF-1 will increase after they receive exogenous insulin. And then they may breach that threshold of increased suspicion for underlying HST as the cause. So you can definitely test them before you even start exogenous insulin. The downside is you may miss a few. So if you are going to wait, then the time to wait at the moment seems to be about eight weeks will be a reliable time point to wait. But I think it's entirely reasonable to see how patients do and to test those that are doing things slightly atypical with their um, diabetic response. If you only test those that have an atypical response to exogenous insulins, I do think you'll miss some. Not all of them are wacky diabetics to control, and some of them seem to respond very beautifully to routine doses and strategies of diabetic management and insulins. So if you've got an owner who's very unlikely to ever want additional treatments, then I think not investigating and just managing that diabetes, even if they're relatively routine and, and never knowing if they had underlying HST is, is acceptable. But if you've got an owner who may consider pursuing additional investigations, additional more targeted treatments, then I think even if you do have a relatively easy to control diabetic, I do think there is merit in testing those. 
brilliant. One of the, the final questions I did would just want to ask about medical management. Obviously, it suppresses the hormones, but does it also have an impact on the size of the pituitary mass or does the mass continue to grow? That's something that we looked at when we did the pisiriotide study in cats. Pisiriotide and other treatments in the same family like octreotide can successfully reduce the pituitary tumor size of people with acromegaly and we're hoping whether or not we would see the same effect in cats. We didn't actually see much of a change of size and there is actually one or two cats that went on to have progressive pituitary enlargement while receiving the medication as well. In the feline HST setting, then pisiriotide doesn't seem to be shrinking the pituitary. In terms of cabergolin, I'm not aware of any data looking into that. My understanding from human medicine is it doesn't do too much for growth hormone producing tumors. There are other types of pituitary tumors like prolactin producing tumors, which are responsive to cabergolin by reducing their pituitary size. I don't believe the same happens with the growth hormone producing tumors in cats. Their pituitary is either unchanged or they continue to enlarge over time. So potentially with some of the longer term cases, we may just need to keep an eye out for any neurological changes. Absolutely. What would your top tips to those of us in practice where we potentially suspect HST is, is inducing the diabetes? Most owners have enough on their plate to try and initially manage the diabetes before considering too much else. I would have a conversation with owners after two or three months saying, now we're getting on top of the diabetes or we're not. There are other conditions which can contribute or cause diabetes in cats, one of which we can easily test for. And at that time point, I would suggest doing the IGF-1 testing. And if that owner wanted to go into the realms of learning about additional treatment options, I would discuss that with them. And that may include wanting to know the pituitary size. So if they're extremely polyphagic or they are ones with phenotypic suspicion, then you might want to do additional investigations to try and determine whether or not that IGF-1 truly represents HST or not. If they didn't have those characteristics, it would be reasonable to retest at a later time point and see what that does over time, probably another three months. If they're a borderline again, you might entertain the idea of considering pituitary imaging if the owners wanted to know if that cat had HST because they might do something pituitary specific on the back of that information. That would be my general approach. No, brilliant. That's really helpful. And thank you so much for your time today, Chris. I, I think I, I've learned a lot, both reading your article and talking with you as well. Thank you for listening. If you're an ISFM member, don't forget you can access the full version of this podcast and all the other ISFM member benefits, including Congress recordings, monthly webinars, the Clinical Club, the Discussion Forum, and much, much more at portal.icatcare.org. If you're looking for more free CPD from ISFM in March, we have two open access webinars. The first is from Perina, how to manage the CKD patient with comorbidities. And the second is from IDEX on feline gunkyitis, when to swab and when to test. We'll be back again next month with another episode. If you don't want to miss out, do make sure you've signed up to Chattering with ISFM on your preferred podcast platform. <laughs>